Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of a new day, and in particular for this Bible study. We pray that as we study this book of Hebrews, that we would learn something new about who we are as your people, and that this knowledge of our identity would translate into a new sense of mission, calling, and faithfulness in the world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so welcome to the book of Hebrews, and before we read the opening chapter, uh, I want to share some intro notes. Uh, The first thing is that Hebrews is often called an epistle, but it's not really an epistle. It's not really a letter written to a church, as many of Paul's letters, but rather a sermon, most likely, that was written and circulated in the early church. And the intent of Hebrews, it talks a lot about the atonement, but it's not so much to explain the atonement, but really to enact it rhetorically. Uh, The author of Hebrews wants people to feel as if they are forgiven. In other words, the point of Hebrews is not so much for our head to understand Jesus's work on the cross, but rather for our heart to feel it. It's for our heart to be moved. We're not quite sure who the audience of Hebrews was originally, but there is some indication that those who received this sermon might have been tempted to lapse back into Judaism, or might have been for those who were enamored with Judaism. And essentially, the author of Hebrews says, this would not be a very good judgment call. And we don't need to assume that these were people ready to leave the faith to become Jewish or to return to Judaism, but we do get the sense that the readers were familiar with many of the cultic practices of Israel, especially in the wilderness, and that they needed to understand how Jesus was superior to or exalted above what we often call the Old Covenant. And so part of what's happening is the author doesn't really think that his audience gets the atonement, doesn't really get who Jesus is or what Jesus has done or really who they are as God's chosen people. One of the things we'll notice is that the language of Hebrews talks a lot about the old liturgical patterns of Judaism. But one thing I want to note is that the patterns described are not those of the temple, which was in Jerusalem and destroyed in 70 AD, but rather the patterns of the cultic practices of the Israelites in the wilderness, right? So we recall that in Exodus, The Israelites left slavery of Egypt, went to the promised land, but it was in the wilderness that they were given certain practices in order to worship and honor God, and it's these practices that are being referenced. And so the temple is really probably not even around to go to in order to practice the old sacrificial system. And so Hebrews reference to it. It's not so much that people are tempted to sacrifice a real bull and goat to have their sins forgiven. It's that they don't really fully understand how Jesus' sacrifice renders that less meaningful or not as important. 
I think the other thing to know about the community that Hebrews is written to is that these people are tired. They're going through a lot. The people seem to be a little tired of church, unable to find Sabbath rest. They're afraid of God. They're terrified by death. They're overwhelmed by suffering, and they are finding little rest. One of the famous verses from Hebrews is, Let us run with perseverance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. But the reason there is this call to persevere is because the people are so tired. The people need rest. The people need encouragement. And so the question is, how does the book of Hebrews do that? And one of the things that we might discover as we read this sermon, which I might time to time call an epistle just for ease, is that there are many verses that sound very moralistic in nature. Things like, don't drift away. Don't do as they did, but do this. Uh, How can we neglect so great a salvation if we don't do X? And one of the things I want to invite us to do from the beginning, because I think it's true, is not to read Hebrews as a moralistic text, but rather as a text that is seeking to help people understand who they are. This is really about identity. Who are you? And the book of Hebrews will answer that in a particular way. And in particular, those who are part of the family of God as Jesus's brothers and sisters, as co-heirs. And so there's a big question of identity in this. Who are you? One final note, and then I'll see if you have any questions about my opening notes. In the backdrop of Hebrews is not just the Old Testament and the cultic practices of the wilderness, but the Exodus, where the Israelites were freed from Egyptian slavery and offered a promised land. This theme of liberation is big, but you and I are not enslaved by Pharaoh. You and I are not enslaved by a nation like Egypt. And so what is it that we are enslaved by? And one of the ways that Hebrews answers that question is we are enslaved by the fear of death. So for Paul, we were enslaved by sin with a capital S. For Hebrews, we are enslaved by our fear of death. And so Hebrews will talk a lot about the great high priest who tasted death for everybody, who freed people who have been held in bondage by their fear of death. One of the things that Hebrews wants us to be free from is our fear of death. And that's also a big theme in the background. All right, Evie. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. 
But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing, like a cloak, you will roll them up and like clothing, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will never end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels spirits in the divine service sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the message declared through angels was valid, and every transgression or disobedience received a just penalty, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first through the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard him, while God added his testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right. Thank you so much for that beautiful reading, Evie. So the epistle starts out by speaking about how long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways. And this epistle slash sermon will talk about all those ways. The prophets were part of those ways. The law was part of those ways. God's divine presence at Mount Sinai was one of those ways. And of course, one of those ways that God spoke to God's people was through angels, which get a lot of attention in this beginning portion of the sermon. And we can talk a bit about why that is. So angels were one of the ways that God spoke to the people of Israel. They were messengers. And so right off the bat, part of what the author of Hebrews wants to do is to say that Jesus is not one among many of these various ways. Now, certainly God still speaks to us in many and various ways. God speaks to us in the love of our friends and in through creation. I mean, there's lots of ways God speaks and none of that is denied. But part of what Hebrews wants to articulate is that Jesus is the final revelation of God, that there is no fuller, more complete revelation coming, that he is the one through whom the worlds were created and he is the exact imprint of God's very being, and that, in fact, he sustains all things with his powerful word. This is a very high Christology, and I'd even say in this passage we read, we have the fullness of Trinitarian theology embedded in it, right? We've got God speaking, so God and God's word, God spoke, but we also have the Son, who is the exact imprint of God's being, and at the very end of this passage, we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and so for those who are tempted to think that the doctrine of the Trinity was made up at the Council of Nicaea, I assure you that it is embedded and woven throughout all of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews being no different, but here, Jesus is right off the bat declared to be the imprint of God's being, God himself, in other words, the one through whom everything was created and is said to be superior to angels. Now, 
why all this attention on angels? Well, two answers I give to that question. One, I think, is that this community to whom Hebrews was first addressed probably was a little enamored with angels and angel worship and the role of angels. This was within Pharisaic Judaism, something that was focused on from time to time. And part of what the author actually has to do is to differentiate Jesus from the angels. And that might seem kind of silly to us who are Christians. I mean, of course, Jesus is superior to angels, but there might have been some in this community who needed to hear that very clearly right? Jesus is not just another divine figure. Jesus is not just another divine messenger. Jesus is superior to those angels. In fact, angels are created beings, and Jesus is the one through whom those angels were created and the one who sustains those angels by his powerful word. Uh, The second reason I think that we have this opening bit about angels is that the author of Hebrews will methodically elevate Jesus above all those many and various ways used in the Old Testament by God to speak to God's people. So we're just starting with angels, but then we're going to hear later on about how the son is superior to Moses how the son is superior to the old sacrificial system. And the idea here is to elevate Jesus as the highest being to whom our worship is due. And so a question for us as we read this, you know, my guess is that none of you are specifically struggling to elevate Jesus above angels, that you probably put angels in their proper place. But the question is, what is it that you're tempted to make superior to Jesus in your spiritual life, right? Because it can be anything. Some of us are pretty obsessed with doctrinal correctness. Some of us are pretty obsessed with liturgical beauty. Uh, Some of us are pretty obsessed with a particular style of being Christian, a particular prayer in the prayer book, whatever it has to, happens to be. You know, as religious people, we, we take aspects of our religion and we make them very, very important. And although we never do it consciously, there's a tendency to elevate these things above God himself. And so right off the bat, we are reminded that Jesus is superior to all our religious beliefs and preferences. He is the firstborn of God. In verse 5, ending in verse 13, there is a lot of quoting of the Old Testament. Psalm 2-7 is one of those quoted where God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This was a verse originally applied to the people of Israel, who was said to be God's chosen son. And so in a manner analogous to a lot of Paul's writings, here Jesus is held up as the true representative of Israel, the true Israel, the faithful Israel, the one who accomplished what Israel was unable to do, right, to be a light to the nations so that God's salvation reached to the ends of the earth. And so we can talk about these different verses if you'd like, but the intent of verses 5 through 13 is to root the elevation of the sun over the angels in the Old Covenant itself by quoting various passages. 
And of course, verse 14 sums it all up when it says, are not all angels spirit in the divine service sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And, and so here, the distinction between angels and Jesus is perhaps most clear. Jesus is going to be the captain of our salvation or the pioneer of our salvation, as we'll read in the coming weeks. An angel is just there to support those who are inheriting that salvation accomplished by Jesus. And so chapter one, if we're going to sum this up in a sentence, Jesus is higher than all the angels. But again, the question for us is, where do we need to remember that Jesus is higher? When is it that we are tempted uh, to elevate above Jesus, if not with our head, then with our heart? Uh, the reason I included this little snippet in chapter two is because I think it belongs with chapter one, right? Chapter two begins with the word, therefore. Since Jesus is the highest good, therefore, there is an implication, that implication being that we need to pay greater attention. Therefore, we must pay greater attention. A question for us to talk about is, in your own life, where do you need to pay greater attention so that we do not drift away? And what I can tell you in my experience of being a priest and, and probably your own experience of being a Christian and working with other friends is that rarely does anyone just leave the faith, but all the time people drift away. And they drift away because they're not really paying attention. And so that verse has a lot of punch to it. Therefore, we must pay greater attention so that we do not drift away. Where are you tempted to drift away? And where do you need to pay greater attention? That's a, a really important question. That verse, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I know that that's one of those verses that can send chills down our spine, but I think the emphasis is on the greatness of the salvation. That ultimately is what we are asked to pay attention to. Uh, and then finally, it was declared at first through the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard him. The testimony was complemented by signs and wonders and by the Holy Spirit. This is the author's way of reminding us that we are a particular people, right? The question is, who are we? We are the church. We are those who believe this message. We are those who exalt the sun above angels and everything else. And it's not a made-up story. It was declared by the Lord. It was attested to us, the apostles, by those who heard him. It was a testimony the Holy Spirit confirmed with various signs and wonders and miracles, which the author assumes that the community would have experienced. And so part of what um, the author of Hebrews wants to do is to remind people that they're part of an incredible community and that it's a great privilege to be part of this community and that paying attention uh, also involves being part of the church.